Welcome to the Homebody Podcast. My name is Mary Grace, and here we explore big questions in embodied ways. These conversations intersect the mystical, the practical, and the artful, bridging a range of topics such as astrology, creative practices, what healing can look like, and cultivating deep love and care for the more-than-human world. We not only want to live better, but live more fully, with more connection, courage, and creativity in our day-to-day lives and work. And this podcast asks, what are the ways we can do that? We hope to enliven you and inspire you towards possible regenerative futures, and we hope to encourage you so together we can become dynamic agents of beauty, fully awake, fully alive to all that life has for us. We want to be here for ourselves and for one another with more grace while making room for curiosity, sensitivity, hope, and joy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a few moments to share it with someone else. And thank you so much for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome. So this episode is the first of a spread out mini series that we will sprinkle over the next few months, where we'll be talking about the dark houses in astrology. And these are the second house, the sixth house, the eighth house, and the twelfth house. So this is the first in our series, and I will be talking about the eighth house. In addition to talking about some of the 8th house topics, I'll also provide some overview for the other episodes, including making sure we understand what the houses are, clarifying what I mean when I call these, quote, dark houses, and why are they called that, and then we'll jump into some of the topics, spectrums of meaning for the 8th house in particular. I find that these dark houses, or with these dark houses, there is often a polarized approach with folks. Either one, people approach them with a lot of fear and trepidation, like, oh, if I have a planet in here or something transits through there, then something terrible is automatically going to happen right now forever all the time. Or two, folks decide that they don't like some of the more challenging potential meanings, so they completely rewrite the historical meanings to include nothing dark or difficult sort of like a Pollyanna approach to it. And as with most things, there is a wide range of possible outcomes as unique and multitudinous as there are charts, and it's not one or the other. So these dark houses tend to come up in a lot inside of astrology sessions and consultations. People have a lot of questions around them, which is why I wanted to do a little series on them on the podcast. Some of the episodes will be just me, and for some of the others, we'll be joined by guests. Additionally, these episodes are for learning and understanding They are not personal interpretations of your specific natal chart. So without an actual personalized reading of your chart, there's no way we can interpret yours accurately. So let's not mistake the difference between the two. And if you would like a more personalized reading, you can get some information about how to book that below. But one of the many gifts of astrology is that it can offer us a lot of nuance and specificity. However, that nuance and specificity has to be addressed uniquely as we deal with each chart. And I wanted to kick off this episode for the eighth house with a quote from the Tao Te Ching. And I have a copy that's translated by Ursula K. Le Guin, which is one of my many Bibles, really. And I find it pertinent for this eighth house topics in particular. And the quote is, give yourself to loss, and when you're lost, you'll be at home. And while I'm not an expert on the Tao by any means, and I'm not pretending to be, this way that we can become skillful with things that are challenging and learn to find a sense of at-homeness in ourselves and the world, even when we're encountering you know, difficult topics or like grief or loss, I think there's a very powerful invitation there and one that I think can also be very applicable to the eighth house in particular. So with that, let's dive in. 
So let's begin with what are houses. Let's get some quick context here. First off, in the show notes below, there is a link to an article I wrote last year where I cover the astrological houses more generally. And so you can be sure to check that out for a brief overview of the houses. And if you haven't already, be sure to grab your free cheat sheet. The cheat sheet can be a useful guide or companion as you listen to forecast episodes and just get an overview of what are the houses, what are they doing, what are they providing really. And I would encourage you to check out both of those free resources in the show notes below. Because those resources exist, I'm not going to go into too much detail into the houses in general here, but to briefly summarize, the houses are the 12 divisions in an astrological chart. So when you look at a chart, you'll see it divided up like 12 pieces of pie, and each of those pieces of pie is a house. Each house is a sort of container of specific topics, meanings, interpretations. And as we look through all of them, we locate a broad landscape across the topics of life from birth to death to dating, to committed partnerships, career, home, illness, etc. The houses lay out these topics of life so that we can interpret their unique manifestation in this particular chart. You know, what are their challenges? What are their gifts? What sort of the landscape or the terrain of these topics? And when we integrate them with the actors of the planets, we get a lot of information about how those topics are going to show up when they will show up as we move through life. So grab some of those free resources in the show notes below. If you'd like more info on the houses, you can also book a personal consultation if you have more particular questions about your chart specifically. And you can also join us for Astro Meetup, which I will talk about at the end. So what are the dark houses? So in a traditional Hellenistic approach to astrology, the dark houses are houses two, six, eight, and 12. And they are dark because of their relationship to the first house, the rising sign. And one way we can think of the rising sign or the first house is as this cusp of life or this emergence of life for a particular chart or for the native of the chart. The rising sign is sort of this orientation or this container for the impulse of life, this incarnation that we're looking at. So the dark houses are called this because using traditional aspects, the dark houses can't see the rising sign, which is the light of life. The light of life therefore doesn't shine on these houses because they aren't visible from this cusp of incarnation. So they're called dark houses because they aren't receiving that light. Related to that, as you could expect when we look at the chart as a whole, some of life's more challenging or difficult topics tend to live in the dark houses. So why is that important? And also, why can't every house be like a sparkly secret unicorn with like a rainbow cauldron dispensing nothing but what I want to hear? Well, because astrology is a way that we talk about life and we make meaning of actual life. And life isn't all unicorns and rainbows, or at least mine isn't. Um, so we have to have a way that we talk about work with and make sense out of some of the more challenging topics in life. For instance, one of the primary topics of the eighth house is death. And everyone immediately goes like, Ugh, and it's not everyone's favorite topic, but how accurate or how honest would astrology be as a practice if we didn't have a way or a place that we could talk about death? One of the most central components of the human experience, which is our mortality, is the impermanence of everything. So in order for astrology to be effective and honest, we have to be able to use its language to speak to all aspects of life, not just our favorite parts. Otherwise, it's not a very holistic language, in my opinion. 
So things tend to be more mysterious in the dark and when they are hidden in the dark. And if you think of a landscape outside, you know, when the sun is shining and bright and warm, and now you think of that same landscape when it's pitch dark outside, they're going to feel very different. So our experience of them will be quite different. So, but actually the content of the landscape is essentially the same. It's the same place, right? Let's say it's like a meadow or something. The meadow in the daytime is the same place as the meadow at nighttime, but simply because one is dark um, or when it's nighttime, it's dark, like we, it starts to feel different. We experience it differently. And when we can't see something, we tend to behave differently in that place. We perceive it in a different way. We perceive ourselves in a different way. We find ourselves having to meet more uncomfortable aspects of ourselves or navigate unique challenges because we can't see. So or we can't see in the same way, I think would be a better way to say it. The way that we're going to walk through the metal or the forest at night is different than how we're going to walk through it or experience it at noonday. And that can be something helpful to think about, about the dark houses in general. So they're going to ask us to kind of move about differently. We'll perceive ourselves differently. We may have to confront things or confront experiences that kind of pull up new levels of trust or surrender or navigation, or as we face things that, um, that we can't see as well, um, or topics that we don't prefer. So the dark houses don't aspect, they don't see, they don't witness the rising sign. And so they aren't lit up, so to speak. Another way we can technically speak about the dark houses is that they are in aversion to the rising sign or they're turned away from it. And so the topics that we find in the dark houses tend to be ones that we struggle with. It doesn't mean that good things can't happen there. It doesn't mean we can't receive benefits from these places. We totally can. And it also doesn't mean challenges can't arise from other houses. They totally can. Um, but in general, the dark houses have some unique struggles simply because they are not in direct conversation with, they're not in direct light receiving mode from the rising sign. So that's what I mean when we call, call it a dark house. So let's talk about the eighth house in particular. So some of the topics that we find in the eighth house, and according to Demetra George, who's done extensive research into all things astrology, but in particular in the houses and the development of their significations over the past thousand, couple thousand years, she says that death is the oldest and most consistent signification for the eighth house. So like I said earlier, how accurate or useful would astrology be as a language if we could only talk about the easy parts of life? And death is so foundational to our experience of being human, right? Our mortality informs our choices, our relationships, how we orient ourselves to age uh, and what is important to us. When, while death may not be the easiest truth about life, it is true, and different belief systems offer us a wide variety of maps and beliefs around our mortality and what to do with it and how we should therefore live. And regardless of how you personally make meaning or sense around death, its inescapable reality very much informs how we live. So for me, there is always this invitation to live as if we were dying so that we can live more honestly to ourselves and to one another and to the stories that we relate to the most in this life. And I know that the sort of this reality of mortality, it lives closer to some folks than others. Personally, I have a, some very significant placements in the eighth house. And so while there are many ways that that manifests in my life, a very persistent way um, that I relate to it is that I tend to have a deathbed perspective on life in general. I feel very close 
to that truth. And I think that's something unique as I talk to other people. I don't feel everyone always kind of rubbing up against the fact that we're going to die quite as much. <laughs> and it's very easy for me to always be measuring the quality of my life choices, um, my stories, et cetera, by how is that going to resonate when I'm on my deathbed? That's just a very close question that I live with. And it's taken a while for me to realize that like not everybody's doing that, which is totally fine, but it's a very, uh, I say that and share that because it's a very eighth house perspective. It's sort of a looking out from the eighth house. So of course I have a lot of thoughts about death (laughs) from my personal cosmologies and experiences. However, on a very simple level, I find that the natural world ecology is a brilliant teacher about death. And I remember listening to Chilean mycologist Juliana Farchi, and she said that one of the most important things she's learned from fungi is that there is no such thing as death. That when we look outside to the earth, the cosmos is our home and the stellar soil from which we arose, we see that life begins to emerge each time something else dissolves. So in nature, we see that renewal is something innately embedded in the process of death. And I think that's a good teacher for the eighth house as well. And also there's so many different kinds of death, yes? Anytime we experience a loss of some kind, it is a kind of death. Anytime we become someone else or we morph into you know, the version of us that life needs us to be at this point in time, then we die to an earlier version of us. Whenever we move, the previous home dies. Whenever we enter a relationship, the part of us who wasn't in a relationship dies. Whenever we lose a pet or a sentimental object or a job, etc. For me, it's like when someone cuts down a tree that I really love. You know, Whenever we go through these sort of dark nights or experiences of loss, they're, they're very close to death in many ways. And these are all because of their connection with loss and they're very much eighth house experiences. So these, these losses, these deaths, however you want to think about them are also lessons of how life is always moving and growing and changing in order for change to happen. There must be death in order for something new to come in. Then we must surrender something. So if we have a life that is always growing and evolving and changing, then we are also living a life that is getting good at surrendering and releasing and grieving and letting go, right? If we want to get good at renewal, we need to get also really good at grieving or surrendering. So we could also see death, you know, as this experience of catharsis or this experience of of loss, which secretly or not secretly is also related to an underworld experience of rebirth or renewal potentially. Another common topic for the eighth house is inheritances or other people's money. So let's, if you think about it, you know, we get inheritances, for instance, when someone dies and it can be a benefit or something that is helpful or that blesses someone's life, but it is still tied to death or loss in some way. Other ways that we can find this topic of other people's money in the eighth house, it is like the partner's money. If there's a romantic or a business partner, or there's a relationship that's committed in some way or formalized in some way, um, then the eighth house is where we would look for that partner's money. We can also find debt in the eighth house, you know, money we owe to others um, or taxes, which is another way of thinking about other people's money as it relates to ours. So even with just this particular topic of other people's money, there are, of course, a whole lot of ways we could see this play out or ways it can relate. You know, someone with a really nicely set up eighth house, for instance, might be good at getting money from others, maybe through scholarships or fundraising, or maybe they inherited money or their partner makes good money, for instance. The eighth house is also a house of hidden things, right? Things that we don't normally talk about or things that we keep hidden or are considered taboo, which, you know, that changes from era to era. Um, But what are these things that are considered taboo or occult? Those things that we can, those are things we can find in the eighth house. 
or, you know, ways that we know that we don't quite understand how we know or see it. Along that same vein, we can't see what is going on in our mind or in our head. And there are parts of us that we don't fully see or understand about ourselves. And so sometimes issues of mental health or even, you know, fear or things that cause us grief are related to the eighth house as well. In the episode we did with Alkistis Demek, she talks about the occulted body, which is a very eighth house description or a thing, a concept to work through or work with, you know, this way of knowing the unseen about ourselves or hidden parts of our bodies as a landscape. And with all of these topics, again, depending on everything else going in the chart, sometimes these topics can show up more as the field of someone's work or expertise. For instance, you know, therapists or mental health specialists or death doulas or hospice workers, you know, they may not be the ones suffering from the mental health issue or the death per se, but they are acting in the field of it. And they have some kind of experience or in their expertise in that area. And that eighth house is sort of a landscape where they are acting even if they're not the ones directly suffering from it. Another thing it makes me think of, you know, like estate lawyers, for instance, or people who like help with inheritances or accountants or, you know, tax accountants even. I find this especially true if there is like a well-placed planet or a sun and moon in the eighth, otherwise, you know, a planet that's otherwise happy and healthy. Um, It can sometimes function as someone who is bringing good or bringing blessing or light to a hard or difficult place or bringing light to the darkness in some way. Um, An otherwise, you know, well-boosted planet can work really skillfully with these topics, perhaps even showing up in the fields that I mentioned earlier, even like, again, as an accountant, someone who's handling other people's money, um, or maybe someone who's good at asking for other people's money or they benefit from their partner making a lot of money or something like that. Um, But otherwise, people who can like bring their expertise, their skill to a topic that most people may consider really difficult or unpleasant, you know, like some people may look at the work of a death doula and be like, wow, that must be like really hard or really difficult. But for someone who's really oriented towards that, and that just feels like the proper landscape of their work, you know, again, that's a very eighth housey thing. And if they're otherwise sort of well-placed and well-situated there, then it's something that sort of gives them life in a way that from the outside could seem on the contrary. Another name for the eighth house is the idle place. You can think about that 4 p.m.-ish time of day when it's not time for dinner, it's not time to make dinner, but you're so ready to be done with whatever you're doing. Time is sort of hovering a little bit. The sun isn't in its beautiful sunset moment yet. It's just like hanging out in this low, weak place as the sun makes its descent. And that's the eighth house time of day when the sun is sort of idling in the sky. It's not super bright and visible. There's a lot more shadow creeping in because of the sun's angle. You know, the sun is on its way down for its nightly under the world journey, but it's not in that beautiful striking moment of color yet. So things feel a little hazy or unclear or shadowy maybe. So sometimes planets in the eighth house may struggle with visibility or with being bright, just like the topics of the eighth house may in and of themselves be hidden. The actions of the planets in the eighth house may also be things that take place covertly or behind closed doors, or they could just simply struggle with being amplified or getting acknowledged or being shiny in the world. And so that can be a helpful shortcut to think about planets in the eighth because people are always asking, you know, is it bad if I have a planet in the eighth house? The short answer is no. So many different things are taken into consideration when determining how well or not well a certain planet is functioning or a certain area of life is going. It's not as simple as there's a planet here, therefore it's bad or good, right? It's multi-layered. It's a nuanced process through which we go about evaluating how a planet is doing and what they're doing. 
But what it does mean, though, if a planet is in the eighth house, is it means that for better or for worse, this planet must act through the eighth house. This planet must manifest its responsibilities, its virtues, its qualities through the topics of the eighth house. For instance, maybe you have Mercury in the eighth house. Whatever Mercury is responsible for in that chart, whatever Mercury cares about or is involved with in that particular chart has to come to fruition through the filter of the eighth house or the backdrop of the eighth house. So Mercury, you know, then will have to wrangle with or find a way to manifest with these topics of the eighth house. Since the eighth house is a dark house, it could also mean that a planet there maybe sometimes is difficult to access or rely on, or maybe it's difficult to use as a guide because it's traveling in the dark, which isn't always the most efficient way, right? That planet may get lost or disoriented, or it may require extra work um, or different ways of knowing or less traditional ways of knowing, more dark ways of knowing in order for them to function well. So a planet acting through a dark house may take us through less traveled paths where we have to use more of our intuition or because the way feels less apparent, right? If it's less direct or less obvious or less revealed, it may mean that in order to bring about what this planet wants to do, that we have to undergo these eighth house processes of healing, catharsis, death, or periods where we feel lost or in the dark or confront mental health struggles or confront issues around other people's money or debt or inheritances. But no, that doesn't mean it necessarily has is automatically a negative experience or it has to result in a negative outcome. And I also want to add that just because something is hard or even dark doesn't automatically mean it is or is going to be a negative outcome. We can also look at it as an invitation to engage more directly with any needs or wounds or insecurities we have around these issues, right? When we realize that it's kind of inescapable, it's like, well, we might as well get good at it, right? And even if you don't have a planet in the eighth house and you're like, whew, there is still an eighth house in your chart, right? It still exists. It's still acting somewhere in the chart. It still has planets, transits through it. That house still has a ruler. That ruler is still acting in the chart. There's no life where we don't have to interact with these topics in some way. And so I want to wrap up here with the invitations present and as a reminder that we're always being invited into healing, right? How can we get skillful with healing? How do we get skillful with seeing in the dark? How can we become more accepting of death and compassionate with loss? How do we get to know our underworlds and become better storytellers of those spaces? How do we practice the surrender that's necessary for growth and evolution as seasons change? How is the natural world around us teaching us about these things all the time, right? How do we get more skillful with money and other people's money? (laughs) How do we need support? You know, if we're struggling with fear or mental health or death or grief, these things that are hard to see and understand by ourselves, how do we get better at seeking help, asking for help? You know, what are ways that we can learn to express what we need so that we can see our hidden things more clearly? Or how can we know them better, whether we see them or not, right? Maybe we never see these things. Maybe we never understand them clearly, but how can we know them and work with them anyway? And who helps us do that? If we're having trouble understanding something about ourselves, you know, what or who can serve as a mirror to help us with that? You know, if there's a Uh, something that you can't see because you're facing a particular direction, you can just find an angle with a mirror and you can see like in a dressing room, for instance, you can't see the back of you when you're looking straight ahead unless someone puts a mirror behind you and then you can. So who can see our blind spots or what can help us see that? You know, when it relates to material resources or money, how do we relate to the money of others? Are we in skillful relationship with that? And do we allow ourselves hidden things? For instance, do we allow some things to be just for us or just for the dark or to stay secret, 
right? In a world that's so published and out front and put it on Instagram and put it on TikTok, do we keep some things just for ourselves or for the dark? Do we allow some things to be occulted that want to be? I'll wrap up here with a quote by Thomas More that feels applicable. Quote, it is precisely because we resist the darkness in ourselves that we miss the depths of the loveliness, beauty, brilliance, creativity, and joy that lie at our core. Unquote. So are you interested in having a secret? Do you have shadow and shade like a good painting? Is that something that we can get better at as we become better travelers of different kinds of terrain and different kinds of lighting, right? When we think about Venus retrograde, um, I'll have an article linked for that below if you want, where we talk about, you know, Inanna's descent or Persephone's abduction or Jonah in the belly of the whale or these other underworld mythologies. How do we become good travelers through the underworld terrain or dark terrain so that we can move through both worlds, both times of day, the way trees do or legends do or humans do. And when we become better travelers, then there are fewer things that we fear because we've met the darkness and we know its name and we can therefore move through it and move with it and travel in it when we're called to. Because we're meeting all of life, which includes death all the way, life in which there is the beauty and the terror, as Rilke says. So I hope this gives you a good intro, some food for thought regarding the eighth house. If you have more questions or things that you'd like discussed on the podcast, you know, reach out, leave us a review, email us, let us know. Remember to check out our free resources below. And you can also sign up to join us for our free astro meetup, which takes place on the first Wednesday of each month. If you'd like to talk about this um, more with me and with others. And with that, I wish you light on your way and the ability to see in the dark when there is no light. May you be well. Peace. Until next time. Thank you for participating in this conversation with us. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a few moments to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and share the episode. These tiny tasks help our independent podcast so much. Be sure to also check out the links below to learn more about any free resources, guests, or things we talked about today. Our intro and outro music was created by artists Aaron Palovic and Jared Kelly. Our podcast logo was created by Elaine Stevenson, and this show is produced by Softer Sound Studio. Thank you for being here. Be well. Peace. Peace.